0: Coming up in this episode of Voices of Care, I'm speaking with Toby Lewis, the Chief Executive Officer of Rotherham, Doncaster and South Humber NHS Foundation Trust. We'll be discussing, amongst other things, the NHS long-term workforce plan and how we can truly turn the dial on health inequalities. The reality is we need to treat poverty as an insidious
1: uh, condition that drives ill health. And for me what that means is the NHS has to get serious about housing, and get serious about jobs. Forty to fifty percent of the health outcome, or health status that our people experience, is grounded in those two factors. The NHS is the rich part of public services. And it's the part that hasn't lost forty to fifty percent of its funding over the austerity period. So, we really do need to come to that table, recognising that position. In in my own family life, uh, you know, the people receiving domiciliary. Uh, care from people paid less uh, than the real living wage, who are then paying for a taxi to go between appointments at, at 10 o'clock at night. We wonder why we can't retain people into those roles.
0: Hello, I'm Sahel Mirza. Welcome to this episode in the second series of Voices of Care podcast. I'm joined today by Toby Lewis, the Chief Executive Officer of Rotherham, Doncaster and South Humber NHS Foundation Trust. The Voices of Care podcast looks to get to the heart of the issues facing the health and social care sector and how we can enable the healthcare workforce of the future. This is extraordinarily timely given the publication of the NHS long-term workforce plan that seeks to turn the dial across all occupation groups. And In that regard it's really important to hear from someone who spent their career across all segments of the healthcare service here with the NHS and therefore I'm delighted and welcome Toby. Good to be here. It's great to have you here and before we go and deep dive into the workforce plan and the wider healthcare challenges that uh, the system faces and opportunities, perhaps it'd be good to give you a bit of a broad background in terms of the work that you're doing. It's been a few months now uh, since you joined uh, Ardash as CEO.
1: That's right. We're counting it in months now. and past the 100 days in North Lincolnshire and South Yorkshire where we're providing care for people with learning disabilities, running mental health services, got the full range of adult and children's uh, community health services, a a really remarkable uh, set of teams across a large geography, looking after about three-quarters of a million uh, people uh, in uh, in a very deprived part of the country. Very rewarding work.
0: Fabulous. And uh, the provision has also evolved from focus simply on mental health and learning disabilities to wider community services.
1: Absolutely and we need to continue don't
0: we to break down those boundaries you know for
1: people who are perhaps frail for for children and families some of those boundaries are the silos that the English NHS tends to create so absolutely what Ardash is about is beginning to try and break down some of those some of those barriers.
0: Looking at the bigger picture, the NHS is, of course, perennially in the news. Um, mm. We've got industrial action in the backdrop throughout the year. Um, massive shortages, 112,000, according to the NHS workforce plan. Uh, you've spent 25 years, I hate to remind you, in your career across mental health, primary care, hospital settings... Uh, the odd uh, uh, medical school founded along your uh, responsibilities. Um, In terms of the depth and breadth of this current crisis, how does it compare and how is it impacting the workforce at Ardash?
1: Well, it's important we don't
0: normalise that. I mean, even a
1: sense of perennial difficulty creates a sense that what we're facing now is always with us. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm realistically optimistic about the future, uh, but of course there are profound vacancies many people on the back of the pandemic are choosing to leave the workforce uh, so that makes a big difference doesn't it if you're mm. working in a team and actually you don't know some of the people you're working with then lots of other things that we take for granted in terms of improving healthcare, mm. learning teamwork those things dissipate because I'm trying to work out who I'm working alongside. And if you take Ardash specifically, you know probably our strongest pressure point is in terms of consultant psychiatrists in sub-specialist areas where we've got you know twenty three folk in as locums and we're probably spending five million pounds a year trying to make that work. I think it's the third highest percentage in the country. and obviously we've got a commitment. To change, to change that over time. Um, but to do that, we've really got to make working in these environments rewarding for people because we're in an international market now, aren't we? So we need to find new and more thoughtful ways of making working in our house so
0: it's something that people really want to stay and do. Absolutely. Now, the bigger picture, I want to just step back a bit, mm. um, the workforce challenges, the shortages are all part of a much wider picture, and and your work um, as a Senior Visiting Fellow at Kings Fund Mm. focused a lot on healthcare inclusion. Mm. Now, it's almost 200 years since Disraeli wrote uh, Sybil, The Two Nations, where he bemoaned Mm. the challenges and the uh, differences that were available across our nation. We're looking at some of the stats now. The most deprived groups, life expectancy just as one indicator, shows a huge disparity, and it's been 15 years or 13 years since Marmot mm. um, just to get your expertise on that bigger picture because if we're going to have a hope of changing the outcomes and, and managing demand because that's the driver of the short shortages in terms of workforce what are the things that we need to do because we have a lot to do in that regard we certainly do
1: I mean let's start by naming it mm. so this is a conversation about poverty poverty is bad for your health and we can uh, think about that in all sorts of philosophical ways. But the reality is we need to treat poverty as an insidious uh, condition that drives ill health. Uh, and in that sense, the NHS needs to face up to that reality. We probably need to do perhaps two or, or, or three things. Mm. There's a disproportionate emphasis needed to what Michael Marmot called proportionate Universalism, isn't this? So, we need to lean into communities that traditionally we have excluded ourselves from. Uh, of course, we need to focus on healthcare inequalities, but if we just focus on healthcare inequalities, in other words, differences of access and so on, we really will not make a dent. Uh, in differences of outcome, huge disparities of outcome, particularly something like healthy life expectancy, you're you're talking about twenty or twenty-five years of productive family life, economic contribution that somebody won't be able to make uh, if they're at the extreme end of that deprivation. And, and for me, what that means is the NHS has to get serious about housing and get serious about jobs, 40 to 50% of the health outcome or health status that our people experience is grounded in those two factors. So we we, we can't be a bystander to that, to that conversation. Remember, the NHS is the rich part of public services. Um, it's the part that hasn't lost 40 to 50% of its funding over the austerity period. So we really do need to come to that table recognizing that position and focus hard on housing and on jobs, in my view.
0: Absolutely. Now, you wrote <clears throat> very eloquently and passionately about this when you uh, wrote about it with the King's Fund. And I, I just want to briefly touch upon the role, the promise, potentially, that the integrated care systems offer, because we've had this seminal moment of the statutory footing mm-hmm. of them now a year uh, into it. Are you seeing hope uh, in terms of tackling it in an integrated way that's what you're calling for yeah and i think i think i'm seeing two two sort of strands of hope
1: really i mean inclusion health in other words Uh, the best care of people who might have been prisoners, might be street homeless, might be forced migrants uh, and so on, is definitely a a space where its integrated care partnerships in particular, I think, have an opportunity to do. Um, We're about to publish with Pathways some more work that looks at maybe the six or seven steps that need to be taken. And I know that NHS England have got some work coming that draws on great work that's being done across the country but just to give a different example different take on your same point about the opportunity of integrated care if you take somewhere like the south yorkshire integrated care system where i'm uh, working now or one of the icbs where we're working now real focus on school readiness Mm. as an indicator of exclusion we know that if you intervene in someone's educational accomplishment at that younger age Costs about 15 times less than trying to remedy the challenge uh, as you go into your later teenage years. We know too internationally uh, that you can predict difficulties of school readiness using six data items in the first six months uh, 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 of someone's life. So this is a foreseeable challenge. And if we're thinking about integrated care, bringing education, bringing health services uh, and uh, social care services at the margin together, then surely school readiness is a place to focus. I'm really pleased that colleagues in South Yorkshire, uh, led by the mayor and others, have prioritised that as our number one health inequalities focus uh, for the next five years. Uh, And Michael Marmer talked about the fact that while school readiness rates have improved in this country over the last 15 years, the inequality gap in school readiness rates hasn't changed at all. So we can't do more of the same we're going to need to do different things and run some experiments on what works. That uh, is a hopeful comment in Mm. terms of
0: uh, true prevention right at the source. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. But but it shifts too, doesn't it? It raises really difficult questions because when we think about health inequalities, perhaps in older adults or, or uh, you know, someone like myself in, in middle age, often we're talking about uh, someone who is not in contact with services, mm. That the homeless conversation we were having. Obviously, for children and young people, you know, there's a universal pathway. There is a pattern of involvement. So, you know, I'm working now with our health visitors and, and others, but we really need to think about what, what are the things we could do that would begin to shift the dial also raising complex challenging questions about what the boundaries of the state are in the life of a household so not easy stuff but as i say both morally and economically
0: absolutely uh, where we need to be as a country absolutely and perhaps uh, politicians who are listening to the podcast will uh, take some lessons from what you've said Going to the workforce now sure. uh, and the publication of the NHS Long-Term Workforce Plan, mm. I'm going to delve into detail around retention and the growth uh, of the workforce. But stepping back, it's a once-in-a-generation, self-proclaimed once-in-a-generation document. Mm. As someone with your vast experience uh, across the NHS, how has it been received? Because it's, it's quite a bold document and a brave document in many ways. Well, it's a challenge to leaders in the NHS
1: isn't it it's easy to uh, look at documents produced centrally and say well there should be a bit more of this or a mm. bit more of that but actually I think what Navina and Amanda and others have delivered is is a real opportunity mm. for educational institutions for NHS providers and others to partner up and try and do something different who, who couldn't be upbeat when there's 2.4 billion Um, in the pot 74% more training places for health visitors uh, just to go back to the uh, just the earlier conversation so so lots of reasons to think in a sense some excuses off the table Mm. now we need to
0: go do don't we Absolutely, and I think that's the, the the challenge or the call to action. Um, the plan itself, if we can go to the retention <laughs> piece before the growth piece, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's predicated. In, uh, it says embedding the right culture mm. because we've had, of course, the numbers one hundred and seventy thousand that left the NHS uh, last year for various mm-hmm. reasons, including work-life balance. I want to dig deeper a little bit about how important the right culture is mm-hmm. a- and leadership, but before that. Let's talk about a subject I know is close to your heart, which is inclusion mm. within the workforce. We've had mm. the improvement plan now published by the NHS as well mm. in June. What's your take on this? Because the numbers are quite stark. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done, some improvement. How important will it be to embed that within the culture of the NHS? Oh, oh I think hugely important. Pe- people need to look
1: around them and see uh, the role models of what they they can and they want to be. I mean, I work for an organisation where we've made great strides in terms of the neurodiversity of our leadership, in terms of the diversity perhaps around sexual orientation in our leadership. But we've got a very long way to go at Ardash in terms of black and minority ethnic uh, leadership uh, spaces and faces. Um, So a real challenge. One, one, to be fair, at at Samwell, I think we made some progress on, I was chief exec there for for seven, eight years, and we did see a a marked change in the nature uh, uh, of the leadership. And that's obviously not the only Element of an inclusive culture, but it but it is a very important one, um, and one we need to make a real a, a real difference to. I, I thought there was some interesting voices recently, really talking about this being about about courage and determination, uh, as much as targets and plans, and I, I'd certainly align
0: myself with that view. And the. Plan also is predicated on getting lever rates back to or above pre-pandemic levels and improvement by 15%. The -hmm. other element that I see as a flip side to inclusion Mm -hmm. is also the support for the well-being of the workforce. The NHS staff survey talked about a third Mm -hmm. of the workforce reporting potential burnout and stress. Again, if you can sort of focus on that, what are you seeing on the ground? What what are your plans? Um, because without that we're going to have a struggle in terms of retaining people. So, so I think we are, and we need to recognise it's a shifting position, isn't
1: it? Mm. What, what we know about um, once-in-a-century events or, 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 or major things like pandemic is it alters the calculus that we make as individuals or in families for our relationship with, with work. Um, so at Ardash, we've got a very extensive wellbeing offer, very strong restorative supervision culture Uh, but i think where we've got to make further progress and where the nhs generally has is really how we support people to work flexibly Mm. Um, you know uh, there's an obvious point around retirement patterns but there's also a point about people as they go through their life they raise family they have caring responsibilities 40 percent of the people who work in ardash have carer responsibilities are we really as an nhs yet Uh, Geared up to support people who might uh, need a little bit of time here, there, may not always be able to be themselves, their best self at work because of things that are going on outside of work. So we need to get a package that is compassionate in terms of line management uh, around those individuals of course part of the burnout is where you started earlier which is if I'm working with people who I don't know Mm -hmm. who I don't recognize then my sense of stress and strain is going to be different Uh, and you know one of the paradoxes I said to our board the other the other week is you often sit in senior roles and you imagine that that what the service needs is more change or faster change Um, And you talk to people, you know, in my 100 days, I've talked to hundreds of people working in our organisation, and what they experience is almost persistent, Mm. uh, never ending zigzag change. So one of the things I want to focus on as a leader, and I'm sure other colleagues are doing as well almost, is is how we nurture and preserve what works well. If 100% of our conversation is about the 10% of things that we need to change. You can't really mistake our staff if they think, goodness me, everything is shifting around me. So there's that real sense of trying to support people. But as I say, perhaps one of the areas where we need to do better and maybe where uh, the next iteration of the workforce plan could do a little bit more is really, you know, are, we,
0: are we truly comfortable with a flexible workforce? Because mm-hmm. sometimes we sound like we're not. And that's a, a challenge to leaders, I mean, we've had reviews, Messenger, etc, where actually the role of leaders from at any level is going to be crucial in making sure this uh, is executed on the ground.
1: Well look, you, you make reference to my long career, which is a, a very polite way of saying I'm, I'm old, isn't it? <laughs> no, I don't mean um, that. Uh, and, and the reality is when I joined the service in 1994, for most yes. clinical professionals, if you made it through training, you'd work in England. Mm-hmm. Um, the world is now your oyster and we can't change that. So in a sense, we're in a global market for healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. This needs to be a wonderful, rewarding place to work. And the notion that the buildings are half decent and the tech usually works is a hygiene factor, isn't it? You want to be able to live out your dreams and your hopes uh, in the work that you do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder sometimes whether we're... We're creating a culture in which people feel they've got that element of agency, that element of possibility. If you take Ardash, we've got a remarkable research capability around our grounded research function. That's one of the reasons people come and, uh, and work with us. And, w- and we need to find those 1% that make it rewarding to work in the organisations that we're, well, we're leading, but really we're borrowing for a period of
0: time. Oh, no, Try to nurture you know absolutely so moving from retention to growing mm. the, the plan of course has very ambitious targets doubling medical price places uh, something you know about sure. in terms of um, being part of the founding of Aston yeah. Medical School but I want to hone in on the focus on um, mental health nurses learning disability nurse specialists very important to you where you're doing that Th- yeah. there's a focus on growing those numbers which mm. is to be lauded of course and sure. um, but I'm keen on understanding your uh, thoughts about how it envisages or reimagines the way people are trained because the plan talks about levelling up training opportunities use of apprenticeships so there's a great opportunity to perhaps be even more diverse in terms of the
1: attraction oh, hugely enthusiastic in this space I think, I think probably the two things from the plan that I pick out that are almost most exciting is, is the notion of really leaning into apprenticeships with the NHS changing the funding model of the NHS around apprenticeships which will be intensely Welcome, Uh, but secondly, a much more immersive approach to the curriculum and to and to training, and I think that's very important. Um, I think that's very important because we have some very traditional notions of what the curriculum should be Mm. and of how we create placements. And when I think about something like not only helping uh, Asif and others to found Aston Medical School, but bringing it into into the workplace uh, within a hospital setting, we really are going to need to be creative. Otherwise, we're going to take those staff that you've already been talking about in terms of burnout and say please could you supervise please could you mentor actually two three times more uh, than the people you you were uh, working with before so that is a real challenge i think in terms of apprenticeships one of the things the nhs can do very well uh, is to reach into our communities and think about people who are often excluded from employment uh, possibilities Uh, in my work at samwell we did an awful lot of work on people who were at risk of homelessness uh, moving into employment and we had a a large programme supported well over 150 people on a benefits free basis both with accommodation and with work. Uh, We've done the same uh, with refugees and migrants, done the same with people leaving the care system so I very much hope that that emphasis on apprenticeships isn't simply us in a sense working with the local college and trying to churn through numbers it's also about us reaching into communities and thinking where can we get that lived experience where can we get that allegiance that the plan uses to advocate for apprenticeships how can we work differently with our communities that takes us right back to the inequalities conversation and my point about jobs and houses that 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 really is the opportunity that's in the
0: workforce plan I think no absolutely and that is a a a beautiful vista but it also requires as you've hinted and very briefly we can touch Mm. upon uh, a a reimagining of perhaps digital pathways and revolutions in the way we actually train the medium through which we're training oh
1: absolutely and i I make no apology for coming back to simulation i think in terms of people being able to imagine the situations into which they will be working um, it's a hugely powerful technology I, i myself with other board members Uh, undertook a simulation just last week on what it would be like to uh, live with or to work with uh, someone experiencing dementia and to be honest it was an eye-opener uh, and I think those those simulative technologies are going to be really important to how we bring more people not not just into the workplace but make them effective in the workplace. Because mm. uh, healthcare is a, is a team sport, uh, and we you know those are technologies that enable people not just to, to learn alone but to interact with others, which are really the key skills that then make people effective in the workplace. Aren't they? Uh, and across boundaries, uh, demographic and geographic as well. Yes, that. and and look, we're talking sometimes about subspecialist skills here. Aren't we? And well, surely one of the things we mustn't lose after the pandemic is the ability to to deploy those subspecialist skills remotely uh, across a, a country, or, or indeed across continents. That that's the reality. We're not going to be able uh, to simply domestically create, locally create all of the workforce and the diversity of subspecialist skills that are imagined in the plan we're going to have to be creative about that and that's where i would call i would urge providers to really drive this i, I think the lesson is it won't come uh, from educational leadership of course the expertise is is there it, it won't come really centrally it's a locally led narrative where now we need to own the opportunity that has been created by the long-term workforce plan say so, right how's that going to work round here what's our slice of that how can we treat that as a as a floor and not a ceiling you know let's go further than is envisaged so you know 24 26 more clinical psychologists between now and 36 sounds a lot doesn't Mm -hmm. it but actually you you said over 15 years that's not the hugest growth you know how do we make sure that the money follows these ideas but then we take people through from training and retain Mm -hmm. them In the workplace and that probably means we need to offer a mixed economy of roles roles where you may work in the private sector as well as in the public sector where you may have career breaks sabbaticals the the old lure of saying we're we're going to hire you and you're going to work for us for 30 years and then there's your pension i'm not sure in a global context that's the cell it once was so we do need to reimagine the relationship between ourselves as NHS employers and people who, uh,
0: who live uh, and hopefully work with us in the local community. No, absolutely. Thinking about the plan itself and some of its predicates, I wanted to mm. touch upon that finally. Um, and the plan itself is predicated on a number of assumptions, uh, some of which we've touched upon. Uh, mm. One is, uh, it, it, by its own phrase, an ambitious productivity assumption. But I wanted to focus mm. on the fact it's also predicated on the fact that access to social care... Mm needs to stay as it is or improve so there's a huge element here where the impact of social care and its workforce remains if not a lacuna definitely a, a vacuum for us to think oh, about
1: look, and, and, and it is frustrating isn't it that, that NHS leaders including people like myself end up sitting in room saying and then social care it, effectively we've written the bo- back end of a story that the front end is around social care the, the document itself as the supposition you describe and then there's a, a wonderful paragraph in there I forget exactly which one which describes how essentially that assumption is entirely flawed by current experience and you can see that look in, in my own family life uh, you know people receiving domiciliary uh, care from people paid less uh, than the real living wage who are then paying for a taxi to go between appointments at, at 10 o'clock at night and we wonder why we can't retain people into those. Roles. Um, what, what we need to be doing is seeing integrated care systems not wait uh, for someone on the steps of Downing Street to talk about social care remedy, but to be biasing our funding into shoring up that, that workforce. Now, I'll tell you why from an NHS point of view we need to do that. We need to do that because people are going to stay in the workplace in the NHS if they feel like their jobs are doable. Your job doesn't feel so doable. If you look over the fence into colleagues in social care, education and so on and think, goodness me, uh, there are big gaps. So so there's a self-interest uh, as well as as uh, as well as a care interest in us getting this right. And it may well be that some NHS providers need to reach much deeper into this space. I know Jim Mackey's done that work. Uh, we work with a number of care homes on, on a partner basis in Odash. I'm sure we will see that work, that work grow. Um, so you're right, that is one of the, uh, of the gaps in the document. Steve Black, I think, has described it as a, a training plan, not a staffing plan. And I think Steve's a very wise uh, man in saying that. It's now for the NHS, I think, to turn this uh, into a staffing plan. I mean, there's one more challenge, though, isn't there, in, in, uh, in what's come out? and this does draw on the experience of trying to create a new medical school as you said in birmingham we we really haven't thought about breaking down the silos in the curriculum by which we educate people so it's fantastic that mental health is the largest single percentage beneficiary of the growth envisaged in the plan but but wouldn't it be equally good to make sure that that mental health parity is a core part of the curriculum across so many roles in health service. Otherwise we end up in a, in a competition of silos. We need to have a look at what we're teaching, at what we're training, and break down some of, those, some of those barriers. And that means we need a little bit of regulatory relaxation in how we set up curriculum, how we set up new providers. That's where the real challenge now is. If we're gonna make progress on this over the next two to four years, we really need to see a slightly different approach from a number of the bodies whose names are in the annex of the report in terms of how we regulate our curriculum in terms of how we think flexibly to be honest we need to think about it like we do as patients we don't see those barriers do ourselves so we need to break that down in how we're training
0: our people absolutely I'd like to end with uh, the look back again at inequalities and the mm-hmm. work that you're doing at mm-hmm. Um the next few years I know you're with your colleagues putting together a, a strategic plan uh, to empower communities to work with citizens and patients um, can you give us a little bit of an insight uh, into what that's looking like because as you say ultimately there has to be integration there has to be true parity with mental health and physical health but it starts in the community and it starts with co-creation with citizens and patients well
1: look, you've put it very well haven't you um, health is a co-created uh, thing And actually what the NHS has to do and what Rdash has to do isn't so much go out there and create the power, it simply has to recognise the power that is there. Uh, and so we'll be working to nurture that. And we'll be doing that in, in perhaps two or three uh, particular ways. H- how we spend our money needs to reflect the neighbourhoods of greatest exclusion uh, that we work with. We need to create a, a parity of esteem with our colleagues who have lived experience, who are working as peer support workers, who are working in the voluntary sector, relying on them not on a a contracted basis or a procured basis but as genuine partners in teams uh, as we do with something like our people focus group at the wellness center in Doncaster uh, and, and then thirdly I think and, and and crucially in how we make decisions in what we prioritize within the NHS we're looking to break down some of those traditional barriers so the the challenge of of producing a strategy is that someone will say well tell me tell me exactly what we're going to do well, if you're going to spend five years working with the power that's in your communities, it's not for us to say entirely and wholly what we're what we're going to do. So, there's 28 or so commitments that we will give in public uh, between now and uh, and Christmas time about where we want to make a particular difference. But really, what the, the strategy at Ardash is about, like other organisations in Northeast Yorkshire, uh, Northeast Lincolnshire, and, and West Yorkshire, is really listening to and working with communities on a long-term basis. And we know from Preston, we know from other places that that makes a genuine difference to mental health outcomes uh, and to uh, health outcomes in what we would traditionally think of as physical health. So that's where we're going to put our emphasis. Different kind of organisation, uh, different kind of focus, uh, hopefully one uh, that we can learn from others like Mersey Care as we as we go along. Because it's um, it, this journey's been talked about before, really important that the authenticity of going on that journey and learning from it is what our communities hear.
0: here. Uh, on that hopeful uh, Very note, much. Uh, Toby Lewis, thank you for your candour and your vision. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please like, follow or subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts. And if you want to find out more about how we're enabling the healthcare workforce of the future, please visit newcrosshealthcare.com forward slash Voices of Care. In the meantime, I'm Sahel Mirza. Thank you very much and look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Voices of Care is published by Newcross Healthcare. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.